have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, space, time, brain, life, the universe. This week, are we more prone to struggle with stress? And if so, why? I'm Greer Jackson, and in today's episode of The Naked Scientist, you and I will be probing the state of our mental health. I'll be stressing myself out to uncover how the human body responds to stress and why. We'll be seeing whether having a gut feeling has anything to do with it and what we can all do to unwind a little more. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Stress. It's something we've all felt at some point in our lives. But there was an article that I read recently that really brought home how serious chronic stress can be. At the 2014 Biennial Chess Olympiad in Norway, not one but two competitors died, one during the match and the other was found dead a few hours later in his hotel room. Why? Well, they think it was all to do with the extreme stress of the game. And what's even more shocking is that this isn't an isolated experience. Back in 2000, a Latvian chess champion had a fatal heart attack during a Finnish tournament. That same year, another Latvian suffered the same fate whilst playing in Berlin. More recently, one of Australia's leading players retired abruptly from chess, saying he'd been warned by his doctors that the stress of top-level competition was causing him serious health problems. It got me thinking about what extreme stress can do to all of us if left unchecked. But on further research, this idea of stress has only been around since the 50s. So is this why we've suddenly been seeing rising rates of stress? Uh, well, stress has been around a long time. The concept of stress has, particularly in engineering, and then we even have courses in engineering departments throughout the world on stress because we're talking about civil engineering, mechanical engineering, and that's the construct. The construct being, you know, pressure on material things, on physical things. Where that converted to human beings probably started with Hans Selye at the University of Montreal. He's a medic. And he started to talk about the stress on the human body. And he used a lot of the early work by Cannon, who was an engineer, saying, hey, if that, there can be stress on physical objects, then there can be stress. And I see stress, he says, as, as a clinician, on human beings. That's Kerry Cooper and naked scientist Connie Orbach. You sat down with him to unpick whether stress is becoming more commonplace or whether it's always been around and we're just more aware of it, right? Yeah, this guy Selya coined the term stress in humans, but actually, stress isn't a new thing. Humans have been stressed out for a long time, but it's only in the last few decades that we've had a definable construct. It's been around a long time, the human condition. I mean, we've had environmental factors, personal factors affecting people and their health for quite a long time. It's just that over the last few decades, more research is being done on how stress affects human health whether it's in the workplace, what are the factors in the workplace that cause people to get stressed, or in life more generally. I seem to be reading that people are more stressed than ever before. I, I hear it all the time. But is that really true, or is that just something we like to say? No, I think it really is true. I mean, if you just take a look at the workplace, 
uh, muscular skeletal diseases was the main cause of sickness absence in the UK for decades. Now it is the common mental disorders of depression, anxiety, and stress. They are now the leading cause of sickness absence, not just in the UK workforce, by the way, but throughout the developed world. You'll see that in the EU, in EU countries, in North America, it is now the leading cause. Okay, I understand that in the workplace, as jobs have changed, so have the reasons for sickness, from physical problems to mental ones. But are there actually any stats to back this up? Well, this is a slightly tricky one. As Carrie said, people have only been studying stress since the 50s, so it's still a relatively new field scientifically, and there haven't been many studies looking at a change in population health. But what there has been has brought in... Well, I think some quite alarming statistics. When asking, are we getting more stressed? Universities have reported a 10% increase in uptake of their counselling services year on year, with mental health problems on campus raising from 8,000 to 18,000 cases in just four years. Wow, that's quite, that's quite a lot. Yeah, I was looking for studies and, and I came across this one and was really quite surprised. And then in terms of really big numbers, in 2014, the charity Mind, the mental health charity, found that 56% of the workers they polled reported workplace stress, which is really a crazy amount. Sorry, I'm a bit speechless. 56% <laughs> is a staggering amount. But I wonder, is there a difference between stress and just, you know, having a lot on your plate? Yeah. Absolutely. And so when does stress become a problem? And actually, this is something I ask Carrie, the difference between pressure and stress. People will say I'm stressed. Basically, when they say that, just generally, they mean they're under pressure. By the way, pressure is stimulating and motivating. But when pressure exceeds your ability to cope, then you're in the stress arena. And when that happens, you'll get ill health consequences. And um, if we are more stressed, you mentioned that the types of jobs we're doing have changed, but also a lot of other things have changed about the world that we live in now. So what's causing this increased stress? Oh, there's a variety of things. First of all, technological advance is much faster than ever before. People have been more mobile. You think about it, 30 or 40 years ago, people worked within a radius of 30 miles of where they lived They had the community around them. They had their extended family. We don't have the extended family anymore. We don't have the natural counselors in our environment, the aunties, the grandmas, the neighbors who knew four generations of your family, who were people you could go talk to because we weren't mobile. But now people are looking for jobs. They're moving away from their extended family. And basically, we're now into just the mother, the father, the kids. So we don't have now the kind of support systems that we had then. And really the insecurity in society generally now, jobs are no longer for life and we're working longer hours. If you take the UK, we have the longest working hours in the developed world behind the United States. You talked about connectivity, but connectivity through technology, we are constantly switched on and, and, and constantly available. We, we talk about relationships, but it's a very different type of relationship that, isn't it? Yeah, what's also happening, I think, is not only the speed of technology and the constant change that we're undergoing as a major kind of outsource, uh, an outside source of stress on people, but think about information and communication technologies. Just think about email. Email is overloading people through mobile technology. It's making people on 724. And in fact, it's interesting that many employers now are closing down their servers at the weekend because people are accessing it too often, some at night. 
the technology has gone so fast that we're not in control of it. It's in control of us. That's quite a statement. Do you feel like technology is controlling you? I've had to think about this and yes, <laughs> I'd rather it wasn't. But I feel like slowly over time I've kind of I've tried to stop it. But things have just come in more and more and more till I've become the person I never wanted to be, a phone obsessed person. And I think it's with the invention of smartphones, actually, that you never quite switch off. There's always like a social media outlet, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram to be checking. There's emails, texts. I'm thinking instant messaging as well. You're bombarded with different types of communications because of this new technology. Absolutely. And there's always an easier way of doing things as well. So I felt like I don't need maps. I'm going to get my own way. But in the end, why don't you just use the maps on your phone? And in the end, why don't you just message someone quickly? And in the end, why don't you just search for the thing that you're all talking about? And then you just can't get away from it because it's always being more useful than maybe I even want. But is that stressful? It sounds pretty, I mean, for me, certainly... It seems pretty useful. I have to admit, when I see like a hundred notifications on an instant messaging app, it does kind of freak me out. But I don't think it stresses me out. I think what that all does for me is it just makes this phone ever present. You, you know, by using it all the time, by it always being more useful than not, I can't get away from it. And I try turning off my emails on my phone, but then I'm like, oh, I'd actually quite like to know that. I, I know they're there. I always know they're there, so I can't get away. Smartphones and technology aside, why is it that some people find an event stressful, whereas others just experience it as pressure? Well, typically the conventional, I suppose, disease model of psychiatry says that when somebody is depressed or when somebody is anxious or when somebody has difficulties in their relationships, it stems from a flaw within the individual. But I think we know that poverty and abuse, bullying negative life experiences and also growing up in societies or in communities which are socially unequal is highly likely to lead to mental health problems. Meet Peter Kinderman. Professor of Clinical Psychology at the University of Liverpool and I'm currently President of the British Psychological Society. One of the things that we know is that unequal societies are nearly always worse and equal societies are nearly always better. So in nearly every measurable way, people growing up in unequal societies do worse. There are more uh, social problems such as crime and social disorder in unequal societies relative to equal societies when you take into account the absolute wealth of the nations. Of course, wealthy countries have more material possessions that they can buy goods, they can buy hospitals, they can buy the time of police officers and so forth, they can buy roads. But given the absolute wealth of nations, those nations that are more equal have lower levels of social disorder, higher levels of personal happiness and lower levels of mental health problems, yes. Why is this though? Because... As Peter highlighted, living in a developed country means you have access to healthcare, education and welfare. One of the things for me as a psychologist that comes across is that the phenomenon of sort of social comparisons seems to be very important. What human beings seem to do is they don't necessarily seem to sit down and think in some objective terms, how is my life going? They compare themselves to other people. We're inherently social animals. So our sense of who we are and how we're doing and our sense of optimism for the future seems to be implicitly tied in with how we're doing compared to other people or how we're doing compared to how we should be doing. 
Is that necessarily a bad thing? Well, I was talking about this with a colleague and we were talking about how wonderful little animals human beings are and how we we strive to improve our living conditions by manipulating our environment. So we were sort of speculating about how it's difficult for human beings to feel satisfied because we're driven to always improve. And you can imagine how it would be evolutionarily extremely advantageous to humans to sit around after a hunting-gathering expedition, eating fruits and vegetables, and then to think, I wonder if we could do things a little bit differently. And if you're going to do things differently, you have to recognise that there's something imperfect about the situation that you see yourself in. So out of that comes a sort of striving, which is good, And I think that makes us supremely creative, but I guess there's always the danger of it leading to some negative emotions as well. Like what? There's a danger of thinking it's not right, it's not good. And I think if we do that too much, if we do that to excess, if we only spot the negatives, then I think we can become either anxious or depressed or or have other sorts of psychological problems. And then you've got to think of why. And I think it's because when you grow up in... Uh, straightened social circumstances when terrible things happen to you or when you grow up in unequal societies, it has an impact on the sense that you make of who you are, what your chances in life are, whether you are a person who can command respect and make positive changes in the world. And if you conclude quite reasonably on the basis of your experience in life that the chances that you have in life are a little bit limited... That's a profoundly depressing, profoundly disempowering experience. Peter Kinderman with me, Greer Jackson, on The Naked Scientists. What has really struck me is that the causes of stress seem to be ubiquitous. There's no one cause. It's extremely knotty and not only entangled with our daily lives, but also on the societal level too. Because of that, its effects are far-reaching, with no one clear solution. But if we really want to get to grips with what we can do to fight this feeling, I think first we need to understand what actually happens in the body when we feel stressed. And that meant I had to volunteer myself as a human guinea pig. So this is our um, labs for um, the psychology department. Hello, I'm um, Nina Smythe and I'm a lecturer at the University of Westminster in the psychology department. And um, today I'm going to be taking you through what the TRIA social stress test is. It involves you to give a public speech in front of a committee, two members, and um, you'll be asked to do a speech about a um, job position. Um, So yeah, if you're happy, just sign and date it. Okay. Now I need you to collect a saliva sample, so this will give us the baseline mm-hmm. measure of cortisol. And just check? Yeah, just until it's sort of wet with your saliva, you'll be able to feel mm. it. I wish I'd drunk a bit of water now. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to take you into the other room. In the other room were two quite stern, and if I'm honest, intimidating-looking people, dressed in white lab coats. The man, who I later learnt was called Frank, didn't look up when I entered the room, and the woman, Angela, stared down her spectacles at me. 
I was told there was a camera recording my every move and to commence my speech about why I would make an excellent assistant psychologist despite never having studied psychology. Um, so my name is Greer Jackson and uh, you may be wondering why someone who has a background in radio is applying for an assistant psychologist's job. Well, first and foremost... As to be expected, it was hard. Neither made eye contact with me. They offered me no empathy, no smiles, nods of encouragement. They were completely blank. Here's Angela Clow. We showed no empathy towards your condition. We had blank faces and we were powerful people. <laughs> we were sitting down, you were standing up exposed. We had our, our symbols of power, our white coat, and we were there to make you feel little. And I did indeed feel little and actually extremely anxious, despite knowing it was a stress test. I found myself fiddling with my necklace, wringing my hands, stuttering. And, um, and, um, uh, um... Well, this stress test has been trialled throughout the world. It's the gold standard of how to make people feel vulnerable and to threaten their self-esteem. Because you were, because you're very confident, actually, in the nature of your life as a communicator, you were able to display your discomfort by being outward and energetic and laughing and trying your best. Some people find it extremely intimidating and they rather clam up and they hardly say anything. And I have to keep saying, you have time remaining, please continue. And they just look at you blankly. And to be quite honest, some people are really upset. Upset is something I can seriously relate to. But for me, the worst was yet to come. We're now going to ask you to perform a mental arithmetic task, mm -hmm. which will last five minutes. Your task is to serially subtract the number 13 from a number that I will give you. Okay. If you make a mistake, I will tell you and ask you to begin from the beginning, from the start number. Okay. This, for me, was worse than the public speaking because, well, public speaking, I do this in my day job in some capacity. Maths, on the other hand, hmm, not so much. Your start number is 2083. So 2083, 2070. And after I got it wrong once, my confidence plummeted. Even listening to this makes me feel stressed. Wrong. Oh gosh, uh, 31. Uh, eight, uh, 80. 78. Wrong. <laughs> Please begin again with 2083. And so it continued like this for a very long five minutes. How did you find it? Terrifying, but I kind of knew it was going to be terrifying. Okay, so what we'll do now is... Um, I want to know if I've got the job. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you did very well. We'll... Um, we'll collect two saliva samples um, in one in 10 minutes and one in 20 mm -hmm. minutes. Hi, Angela. That's a debrief. No, it was, I mean, it was in many ways... Perfect. Turns out in real life, Angela and Frank are surprisingly really nice. <laughs> Although the worst thing is... I was debriefed over a cup of tea with Angela and she talked me through what was going on in my body to elicit that kind of response. 
Okay, as soon as you walk in the room, that would have started the process. There were three stress response systems. Immediately, your, your sympathetic nervous system, your arousal nervous system will start your heart pumping and your adrenaline will start to be released. But also, you'll kick in because it's such a severe psychosocial stressor. It will activate the third, the, you know, the, like the top gear of um, stress responding. That's what we call the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis for, for those who want to know these things. And it's a Creates the hormone cortisol, but it takes a, it takes about fifteen, twenty, thirty minutes for the cortisol levels, which are activated as soon as you walk in, and then sort of start to be pumped out throughout the ten minutes, and then we can pick it up about twenty minutes after the end of the um, the stressor. So where does the saliva come into this? Because you made me chew lots of cotton wool uh, throughout this test and afterwards. So why did you make me do that? Well, actually, this has been the revolution in psychophysiology, which is what we do, the combination of psychology and physiology, is that we can measure this, this hormone in saliva samples. And in that, you have a valid reflection of the biologically active cortisol in the blood, right? And that gives us an opportunity to look at the dynamics of change of cortisol over a period of time. Now, you mentioned cortisol before. Can you tell me what is that and why are you so interested in it? Oh, well, cortisol is endlessly fascinating. It's a hormone. It is essential for life. So cortisol is not bad for you. You cannot live without cortisol. So cortisol is fundamental for life. It's got lots of roles where it regulates biological processes, things that you're not aware of, you know. So cortisol is doing a job that we're not aware of, and it's keeping us fit and healthy. However, in addition to that role, we call it a housekeeping role, looking after our body, it's also the stress response system. So it's got two roles. So you can see if it's such a vital hormone, if it gets abused by being secreted over and over again incessantly, then those vital roles that normally it looks after become compromised because there's too much cortisol going on and, and at the wrong time, etc., etc. Um, if we plotted, uh, say, on the horizontal axis yes. and the amount of cortisol on the, on the vertical axis, yes. what does that graph look like? I'm so pleased you pointed that out because the way that cortisol executes its housekeeping role is by changing concentrations over the day. It's got a direct hotline to the body's biological clock. And so at night when we were asleep, cortisol levels really nice and low so you can snooze away. And in the hours before you wake up, it gradually increases as your brain's beginning to activate. And then when you wake up, this is, for me, the most fascinating part. There's a tipping point where you get this sudden surge in cortisol and you get a doubling in concentration within 15, 20, 30 minutes. It's called the cortisol awakening response. And then after that peak, about 30 minutes after you've woken up, it tracks down gradually over the day till the evening. Yeah. I'm intrigued to see what my results are because I've chewed four bits of cotton wool now and yeah. you've got my, my measurements. Well, I'm very intrigued <laughs> to see them as well and it's going to be um, fascinating to see how stressed you are. You didn't look at all stressed when you were doing this job interview aspect but I have to say you did look under pressure when we, we put you through the mental arithmetic task. When, will, when can I come back? When can I get the results? Well, we're hoping to run your, your saliva samples this afternoon, put them through the express mode and so we come, I'd like to speak to you on Thursday and then we can talk about how you did. Two days later, I went back to see Professor Angela Clough to get my results. Well, the results are in, as they say, and you started off with beautiful low cortisol. So obviously your journey off to here to London hadn't really stressed you out. You were in a nice, relaxed state when you came in. 
And then we took a sample immediately before you came into the room and were confronted by Frank and myself. And then we took one immediately after the end of the stressor, which was 10 minutes, and already your cortisol levels had started to go up. 10 minutes after that, it's gone up, it's about double. And then 10 minutes after that, at the peak, you are... 25% again. So we've got a change from 3 nanomoles per litre at base to 11 nanomoles per litre. So quite a substantial rise. We succeeded in stressing you. In this particular instant, we'd just see a sort of a blip up in the timeline and then slowly go back down to normal. But I imagine if you're continually stressed, that graph becomes, you know, very jagged with lots of bursts of cortisol. Absolutely. You've got an underlying drive for cortisol secretion across the day, which peaks in the morning and goes down over the day. And superimposed upon that, you have these stress responses, which are brought about by real-life events. And so after a period... I should emphasise that these things... You know, people are very resilient in the short term, but if these are going on for years at a time when you're constantly exposed to these stresses across your day, then the impact of that is it affects the regulation of your underlying pattern so that your body is less able to produce those nice dynamic changes and you end up a flat pattern across the day. Why is that? What is the effect? Is it that your cells become resistant to cortisol, much like when people have diabetes, you become resistant to insulin? That's exactly what happens, because you become over-flooded with the hormone, and therefore the body down-regulates its ability to detect it, and therefore you become less efficient at shutting it down. What's the implications of that? First of all, your cortisol is your master hormone regulating downstream biological processes like your immune system, cardiovascular system, metabolic system. And so if that message isn't giving clear instructions about day and night to those biological processes, then they're not going to function properly. And also, there are implications for inflammation. I mentioned the immune system, but modern research is demonstrating that a lot of conditions are associated with inflammatory processes across the body. And if you're flooding your body with cortisol at inappropriate times of day, the inflammatory immune cells, which should normally be shut off by cortisol, also become desensitized to cortisol. So it promotes the inflammatory process. And we know that inflammatory processes, high inflammatory processes, are associated with such a wide range of um, ill health conditions. For example, clinical depression is associated with inflammatory processes, as well as uh, Alzheimer's disease and a range of um, cardiovascular diseases. So many things have inflammatory processes at their root, really. Yeah, absolutely. I find that kind of shocking that stress over the long term can have such physical and also huge effects on your mental health as well. Well, That's why it's so interesting to study. And depending on what your biological vulnerability is, then chronic stress will be associated with a different range of conditions. That's why there's not a single stress condition. It would be so much easier for people like me as if you just end up with a big spot on your face and you say, oh, you're suffering from stress. But it's not like that because stress can manifest in a hundred different ways. Angela Clay from the University of Westminster with me, Greer Jackson. Hello, Connie here. Sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to say a massive thank you for all your nominations for this year's podcast awards. We are so excited to be named as a finalist in the science and medicine category, and we couldn't have done it without you. But it doesn't end there, I'm afraid, because we need you to help us win. We need you to vote for us every day from Sunday the 29th of May for the next 15 days. You're allowed to vote every day, so that's 15 votes. To vote, go to nakedscientist.com forward slash vote. 
Happy voting. Today on The Naked Scientist, I've been stressing myself out in the hope of living a stress-free lifestyle. But what has shocked me is that stress manifests in a huge number of ways, be it anxiety disorders, depression, or even physical ways like bowel inflammation, headaches and fatigue, to even more serious problems like cardiovascular disease or Alzheimer's. A lot of these complications appear to be linked with inflammation and our immune system. And this is because, as Angela said, our immune system is so often flooded with this anti-inflammatory stress hormone, cortisol, that our immune system is now having difficulty regulating its inflammatory response. But there's emerging evidence to suggest that the bugs in your gut could also be linked to how you're feeling. For instance, a paper published in eLife just this month showed how your microbiome can alter your mood. Another has demonstrated how an individual bacterium can stop inflammation in mice. Naked scientist Emma Sackville, you've been looking into this, haven't you? Yeah, there have been a few studies recently looking at mice that suggest that by killing off bacteria, by, say, taking antibiotics, they are less resilient to stress and anxiety. So could you reverse this by introducing bugs back into your system? Well, it may sound far-fetched, but organisms found in soil could help prevent serious mental health problems, as Professor Graham Rook from UCL explained to me. It's as though the stress resilience of people in the rich Western countries has been decreasing with time. And in fact, there's good evidence that if your immune system doesn't switch itself off completely when not required, then the inflammatory responses that are chuntering along there in the background lead to changes in in your brain and lead to depression. So it looks as though if your background activity of your immune system doesn't switch off completely when you don't need it, then your stress resilience is reduced. You are more likely to suffer bad consequences of being stressed. The immune system is really rather like the brain. It has to learn. It has to have the appropriate learning inputs, educational inputs put into it, especially during the first two or three years of life. Now, what we think is happening in the developed rich countries is that the control mechanisms that switch off the immune system when it's not required are not being properly educated in the early years of life. What does he mean when he says our immune systems aren't being educated in these early years of life? I don't quite get it. So it's what Graham calls the old friends hypothesis. It's also sometimes known as the hygiene hypothesis. And this is the idea that kids aren't exposed to microorganisms anymore, like our ancestors were. And this then suppresses the natural development of our immune system. Oh, OK, I see where you're going with this. Because before Angela said that stress reduces our ability to inhibit inflammation and inflammation is all to do with the immune system, right? Yeah, so the scientists were wondering what would happen if they reintroduced these old friends. In particular, they were interested in one specific microorganism found in soil called Mycobacterium vacci. Now, what we've done in in these experiments is use a microorganism which we know switches on certain cells that regulate the immune system. They're they're like the police force of the immune system. They're called regulatory T-cells. And it increases the number and activity of these cells and increases the release of mediators that are anti-inflammatory. And it turned out that by giving this organism to these animals, when they were then exposed to, to a stress, 
It blocked the development of anxiety, it blocked the development of the colitis, and it stabilised to some extent the changes that stress causes in the gut. What's interesting about this is that it may not just make us more resilient to stress, but might also help dampen down the effects of stress. Graham was working with a team from the University of Colorado and they found that mice immunised with this bacteria were also protected against colon inflammation and anxiety, side effects of stress. I still find this slightly bonkers that one bit of bacteria found in soil of all places can have such a huge impact. Next question though. This is in mice, so how do we know that this is A, going to work in humans and B, be safe? Great minds think alike. I also wondered this, and it turns out that there was actually a previous trial where they looked at it to try and help treat cancer. This material has indeed been used in in humans before, and that was one of the reasons for using it in these animal experiments, because that should make it easier to move back to human clinical trials. The point being that it was used in a clinical trial for a condition where, in fact, it didn't help the condition that was being treated, that aspect of the trial failed. But the patients had been subjected to a a quality-of-life questionnaire, and although this has to be regarded as very preliminary data, it did appear to be making it easier for them to, um, to, to put up with the stress of the condition itself. Let me guess. Next up is human trials? Yep, but it's not that simple. Well, you're really looking way into the future now. I mean, since the material is available in what is called good manufacturing practice, that's to say manufactured to the regulatory level required for trial in humans, then it should be possible with appropriate funding to try doing some such study. Designing the ideal study is very difficult. Clinical trials are extremely difficult to do well, particularly when one's looking at an endpoint, which is something a little bit nebulous, like the extent of the detrimental effects of of stress. Despite the nebulous nature of stress, hopefully one day it means we may have another mechanism to treat stress and other anxiety disorders. But one thing that really struck me from the stress test with Angela was how I found myself having to suppress laughter. I have no idea why I was even laughing in the first place. As I said, I found the entire thing hugely stressful, but it got me thinking about how I deal with stressful situations. Could laughter be more than just a coping mechanism? You do, after you've been laughing, get a decrease in adrenaline levels and also decreases in cortisol levels which does suggest that you are more relaxed you're feeling less stressed after you've been laughing. This is Sophie Scott from UCL and she's done a lot of research into laughter. Laughter is more like a different way of breathing than it is anything else so what happens when you're laughing is the intercostal muscles which is the muscles between your ribs start to move in large contractions and they just squeeze air out of you. Now, normally, you use those muscles to control what's called metabolic breathing. So you're doing that all the time. That keeps you alive. You use those same muscles to speak. So as soon as you start talking, you use the intercostal muscles to very finely control flow of air out through your larynx. If I keep talking without taking another breath, my intercostal muscles start to have to work really, really hard, squeeze the air out, and in the end, I'll run out of air altogether. Now, as soon as you start laughing you lose the control of the intercostal muscles that lets you breathe 
and lets you talk. And in fact, because one of the main jobs that you're doing with your breathing when you're speaking is actually controlling how you pass air through your larynx or how you're making a sound in your voice box, very often the first thing you can pick up when someone's talking and starting to laugh actually is this loss of control of the pitch of the voice. And very often the pitch of the voice starts to shoot up because you're starting to squeeze air out under much higher pressures than you would ever do when you were speaking normally. So this is an example of the Radio 4 broadcaster Charlotte Green um, who's introducing a piece on the Today programme about a very early discovery of recorded sound and then she goes on to uh, talk about somebody quite famous who's died and in the interim when they're listening to the example of this very early recorded sound someone who's in the studio with her makes a joke about what it sounds like so you'll hear what happens to her voice when she comes back trying to talk about the death of a screenwriter. American historians have discovered what they think is the earliest recording of the human voice, made on a device which scratched sound waves onto paper blackened by smoke. It was made in 1860, 17 years before Thomas Edison first demonstrated the gramophone, and featured an excerpt from a French song, Au Claire de la Lune. The, the award-winning screenwriter Abby Mann has died at the age of 80. He won an Academy Award in 1961 for judgment at Nuremberg. Abby, excuse me, sorry. Abby Mann also won several Emmys, including, including one in 1973 for a, for a film which featured a police, a police detective called... The character on whom a long-running TV series was eventually based. It's ten minutes past eight. Oh, that's such a great clip. It's kind of beautiful, isn't it? She's desperately trying to keep going. I think that's one of the things that's enjoyable about it. She's on live radio. She's got to keep talking. And her voice is just going everywhere. We don't really understand how that happens. There's something about um, the neural changes that happen when you start laughing that means it does overwhelm speaking and it overwhelms breathing. And even if you do not want to laugh aloud, you start making all these funny noises. So beyond just those contractions of those muscles, what sort of effect does that have on the rest of our body? There's an evidence for a range of changes in terms of the sort of the the biochemistry of the body so you do after you've been laughing immediately get a change in the body's uptake in naturally circulating endorphins so you get a measurable change in in pain threshold after you've been laughing that is actually it looks like it's more to do with the work the, the work you're doing at your rib cage than it is anything specifically to do with laughing because you get the same change in endorphin take up if you do any kind of exercise you get a change in in pain thresholds so that may not be laughter specific you also get over slightly longer time scales a decrease in adrenaline levels and also decreases in cortisol levels which does suggest that you are more relaxed you're feeling less stressed after you've been laughing and that might be more specific to laughter does that mean we should all be laughing you look like you're about to laugh yourself does that mean we should all be laughing more 
I think it's certainly uh, we should let ourselves laugh. I mean, we should definitely let ourselves go to places and situations where we laugh because we tend to think it's a bit of a trivial, silly behaviour. And definitely, I mean, there's very, very little research into it scientifically compared to emotions like fear and disgust because it does sort of feel a bit silly to do this. And we, we don't often let ourselves take our laughter seriously. But actually, I think we should, you know, consider it to be an important aspect of our lives that we should give a bit of space to. Where do we laugh the most? I'm thinking if we want to give more space to our laughter, what should we be pursuing or going out to do that will invoke laughter? It is quite interesting because if you ask humans, and Robert Provan's shown this, if you ask human beings, adults, where do you laugh? What do you laugh at? They'll talk about jokes and humour and comedy. But actually we laugh most when we're with other people. So it's a behaviour that's primed just by other people being there. You're 30 times more likely to laugh if there's somebody else there than if you're on your own. And that means in practice that most of the laughter you encounter sort of naturally is actually when you're talking to other people because that's what we do when we're with other people. And laughter is less to do in those situations with uh, humour, or hardly ever laughing at jokes, for example. It's got more to do with making and maintaining social bonds. So when you laugh with people, you're laughing as much to show them that you like them. If you're not laughing at jokes, then what are you laughing at? People are laughing at statements like, I will have another cup of coffee or I might miss my bus. In fact, Robert Provan's shown at any one point in time, the person who laughs most is the person who's speaking. And I think in that context, it is quite interesting because there's some interesting work looking at relationships and how people deal with stress in relationships that shows couples who deal with stressful situations by using what the scientists call positive affect but they mean stuff like laughter not only immediately become less stressed they're also the couples who are happier in their relationship and they stay together for longer and these interactions does it always have to be face-to-face I'm thinking today people are more mobile you know they're living away from their family and friends and often that means conversations take place over instant messages or texts do you evoke the same laughter or is it a different thing altogether well there is some uh, evidence that you You get most laughter and people talk for longer and are happier after conversations that are face-to-face so you can see and hear the person more than if you can only hear them so you're on the phone. And that's even more, again, than if you can just you've just got words so you've just got text emails sms that kind of thing so it does suggest that the more social information you have the more you will laugh the happier you're going to feel the longer you're going to talk for and you can see people trying to put laughter back in you know in a lot of text-based mediums people try all sorts of ways of you know writing lol or using smiley faces or emoticons or anything that will kind of try and suggest i'm giving you laughter there's laughter going on we try and put it back there but it's never quite the same my favourite of those has always been ruffle, which is roll on floor laughing. But I don't think I've ever ruffled after a text. And you see people trying to, you know, elaborate on that, like ruffle copter or, you know, just anything to try and kind of indicate the severity of this. But as you say, you're writing it, you're actually not necessarily doing it. I wonder, because in today's society, we are increasingly mobile. And I'm thinking of with the use of, of smartphones and instant messaging, it means we have much less of that interaction. Are we laughing less, do you think? Uh, I don't know if we are laughing less. We still seem to find a lot of situations where we will be putting ourselves with other people. One of the problems with laughter is if you ask people, people always underestimate it. So if you ask people, um, they just will never tell you anything even remotely approaching how frequently they laugh because it's almost like you just don't remember. We've laughed throughout our whole meeting today and I I don't really remember that. I don't have a sense of you asked me. I'll probably say maybe four or five times. Uh, And that would just be wrong. So it's, it's, it's hard to know if we're laughing less. But my suspicion would be even if people are relying more on 
other forms of communication. You are still meeting people face to face when you're buying a sandwich, when you are getting on the bus, when you are, you know, in, handing your coat in at a cloakroom. That you, there's still a lot of these other interactions. And these those kind of little interstitial spaces where you can have these very transitory uses of laughter just to make very short interactions go better. That I think are probably as important. You say we've been laughing throughout that interview. Actually, I realised when I was editing back some of my early, very early stuff that I used to a few years ago, I laugh all the time. And now I've developed this silent laughter where I just throw back my head and go, just to encourage people to, you know, to laugh and continue on. It's just... And it's a very good technique. So there is uh, there's work from Robin Dunbar's lab showing that if you can get people laughing, they will tell you more. Has it worked today? <laughs> Absolutely. I would have never said half these things. <laughs> Oh, no, what have I done? (laughs) So do you think laughter is possibly the best medicine? Is the fable true? I think laughter probably is a really uh, good medicine, but I think what we shouldn't do is think of that as like laughter exists on its own. I think it's the fact that laughter primarily happens in social interactions and it's really hard to pull apart from that. So you do find yourself laughing on your own, but you laugh much, much more when you're with other people and you laugh even more if you like those people. So actually, it's like the laughter is an index of all this other social stuff that's going on. And it's very hard to pull apart what's actually contributing to the benefits of the laughter in that context, because actually the whole thing could be good for you. Today on The Naked Scientists, we've been looking at stress. And although it seems a little inconclusive at this early stage, it does appear that all the situations that lead us to laughter in the first place could counteract some of the effects of stress. However, if we turn back to some of the reasons why we get stressed, inequality, lack of community and social interaction or poor working conditions, it feels as though we need to be doing something more than coping, but changing how we deal with stressful situations in the first place. Could it be that we learn to perceive these situations in a different way? And if so, could you then reverse the effects of stress? Turns out the answer is yes. Leading psychologist and therapist Peter Kinderman again. You can learn to react in a more helpful way. And, and, you know, like everything, I mean, you know, if I'm playing tennis, which I'm rubbish at, and somebody serves me a ball and I hit it back very, very poorly, I don't think I've chosen to be inept at playing tennis. I need to be trained. I need to learn. I need to practice. And with practice, with the help of a coach, I'll be better at returning the ball. And when people are stressed, when people are depressed, when people are anxious, with help, they can learn to deal with those circumstances in many cases, in a in a more helpful way. This is sometimes known as CBT, or Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, and Peter has designed an app called Catch It that helps you think about the way you feel and modify your mood. Although Peter does stress that this isn't a replacement for therapy. The big picture here, though, is the one that Peter painted earlier, how we need to shift on a societal level in how we approach mental health care in the first place. I mean, I have to say, sort of speaking in the office of the president of the British Psychological Society, I think we collectively need to campaign for a better society. One of the things that I do is that I'm involved in what could broadly be termed the happiness agenda, looking at well-being as a uh, target for government activity. So the idea there for many Nobel Prize winning, winning economists is that as well as boosting the nation's wealth, what we should be doing, the aim of government, is to take those policy decisions that improve the well-being of citizens. And I think that for us as a society, we could all collectively do with uh, 
taking policy decisions and therefore for individuals voting for those circumstances that would make uh, life better. You know, we should be choosing uh, policies that make our living conditions better rather than choosing uh, policies that merely make us wealthier. Now, that's a long way away from taking an individual who, who is you know, going to their GP and asking for help. But I think it is important to remember that the circumstances in which we live collectively are the product of human decision-making, and we need to, to remember that. I think there are things that you can do with support, with help. I think that, for instance, with trade union help, with the help of colleagues, I think that people can take individual and collective action to improve their working conditions. I think we've just seen the junior doctors, for instance, taking action in standing up against government proposals to, to change their working practices. I think it's very difficult for some individuals working in some companies or, or living in some marriages to themselves just take actions to improve things. But working collectively, we can do things. And I think I would like you know, especially in this context, to, to just emphasise the fact that people are not necessarily as powerless as they sometimes feel. I.e. we need to see mental health problems less on an individual basis because it ignores the wider issues of why we get stressed in the first place. For me, I think it's an incorrect analysis situation to say that the problem lays, lies within yourself. So I think to say that you are experiencing very stressful circumstances and that you are responding to those circumstances in a, in a way which may or may not be helpful, that's okay. But to say you have an illness or you have a disorder, I think, does a number of things. It implies that what's happening to you is abnormal in some way. And I think that that's in the very least questionable for most people. Most people are responding perfectly normally to very difficult situations. So to label it as a disorder or, a, or an illness, I think, is a mistake. To locate it within the individual is a mistake because uh, I think that normally people are stressed by external circumstances, as I've said. I think to then suggest that that's in some way uh, indicative of a chemical imbalance or some sort of abnormality of the brain, I think, is, is very dubious and worrying. I think there's very little evidence for that in the vast majority of cases. And although medication can sometimes be helpful for people. Uh, I think we know of lots of psychoactive drugs that people take, nicotine, alcohol, street drugs, caffeine. These all affect how we feel and how we behave and how we think. But I don't think we put those forward as cures for disorders. It seems that to live a stress-free life, we need to change a lot, not just on a personal level, but as a society too. To me, this feels like a big ask, but as I found out, not entirely out of the question. So I'd read the statistic that Danes are the happiest people in the world and although they occasionally get knocked off the perch, they have been at the top of the happiness polls in studies going back to the 1970s. That's Helen Russell. I'm a British journalist and the author of The Year of Living Danishly. Back in 2013, Helen packed her bags and went to live in Denmark to see if she could find out why the Danes are so happy. And you might be surprised that good interior design, carpets, curtains and coffee tables were a governmental priority at one stage. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I really came across was arriving in a new country with nowhere to live. We were, we were 
obviously house hunting straight away. And uh, before I'd even begun my research, every home I went into just looked very different to any home I've ever been into in the UK. Everyone's home looks like something out of a weekend living supplement with sort of little designer touches, lots of natural fabrics and lots of Danish design and very clean lines, quite simple and functional. And I started researching into this first of all and learnt that Denmark's often described as a design society, but this was something that was mandated by the government in the 1920s when there were huge social and economic challenges, but the government at the time decided that design was important and that it should be a priority because it made people feel better. And they were right, but about 90 years ahead of their time because research from uh, University of London found that looking at something beautiful releases the same brain activity as being in love and stimulates dopamine. Design is a part of everyday life for many Danes. I guess the next thing that I noticed was the famous work-life balance. So my husband went off to work at Lego and came home at 4pm. And then Friday came around and he came home at 2.30pm. Because Danes just work crazy short hours. The official working week is 37 hours, but recent studies show that most Danes only put in 33 hours a week. I mean, does that not affect productivity? I'm imagining if I had, you know, so many less hours, seven or eight hours less, that's a whole day less a week. Well, you'd think, but Danes have something called Arbeidsglöld, um, from Arbeide, the Danish to work and happiness, and is important to all Danes and is something that's factored into society here. And studies from the University of Warwick show that workers are much more productive when they're in a positive frame of mind, when they're feeling happy. So actually, Denmark is the second most productive country in the EU. So they're working less, but getting more done, which just seems horribly unfair. Yeah, well, quite. I wonder if the Danish have a 33-hour work week. What do they do with all their spare time? I wonder whether that also plays a role in this, why they're so happy. Yeah, I think it does. So they they are huge on hobbies. They love a club or an association. So whereas in the rest of the world, people might knock off work and maybe go for a run or go cycling or, or do something of some kind in Denmark there are rules involved and they will do it as part of an organization so you will calendarize that in your work diary you'll say well leave at at 4 p.m because you've got the gym or you've got bike club or you've got swimming club and it it keeps them really active and um, studies show that being part of a group fosters a real sense of belonging and you're more likely to stick at something because you're mindful of letting your teammates down the other thing well nobody steals babies here when I first arrived here, I was, I, I, we'd been trying, my husband and I had been trying for a baby for years. I'd had two years of failed fertility treatment in London, injecting hormones on a daily basis. And then I came over to Denmark and found these babies just sort of scattered around the street, unattended in their prams, left outside cafes and restaurants, even once on a beach when someone popped in into the sea for a swim. And I had it explained to me that, yes, as you say, people don't steal babies in Denmark and that Danes trust each other so much that they think that it's fine to leave babies to, to sleep outside. The, the fresh air is good for their lungs. And so that's perfectly okay but there's a famous story out here of a, of a Danish woman who went to New York and left her baby outside a restaurant when she popped in for lunch and got arrested for child neglect but you know that just doesn't happen in Denmark. On a more serious note it's this level of trust among comrades that fuels not just individuals but society as a whole. 
because of this social welfare safety net, everyone is looked after. Of course, you do pay for it. So, uh, you know, 50% plus taxes still come as quite a shock. But because you're paying your taxes, you trust that your neighbour will pay theirs as well. And you trust that the government will spend that money wisely, which is very different to the way we think about tax in the UK, I think. Food for thought when you're eyeing your next payslip then. But this welfare security safety net, it means that, baby stealing aside, Helen and her husband were also incredibly well supported after the birth of their son. Yes, so new parents get 52 weeks leave to share between them. And there are, so my husband took time off from his job for 10 weeks, no questions asked, fully paid to help look after our son. And here they have a heavily subsidised stork hotel where if you are a new parent and you're just a little bit nervous, you're not quite sure how to do breastfeeding or just how on earth to cope with this living, wriggling, small pink thing that you have produced you can stay uh, for I think up to a week in the stork hotel and nurses can be on hand if you need anything so they just really do take care of you and then because subsidized childcare is so big out here so 75% subsidized most uh, mums go back to work anyway and you know that your your child's being taken care of so yeah it does seem a, a really good system for that. I mean, it sounds like you're phenomenally well supported on all levels. I mean, if I was going to come away from this and think, right, five things that I can do to change my life, to make myself happier, what would they be from your experience living Danishly? And and I, I assume, but I don't know, living happier. Yeah, we we are. I, I'm happy to say. So I think um, one thing that uh, we haven't touched on, but is hugger. It's this uniquely Danish word that um, it defies literal literal translation, but it, it's the best explanation I've seen is the complete absence of anything annoying or emotionally overwhelming. So really, it, it's a lot like the mindfulness that is oh so fashionable these days, but Danes have been doing it for generations. And it really becomes a part of everything that that happens in Danish life. So candles are hugger, um, having dinner with friends is hugger, and it's this real celebration of the small things. So that's something we can definitely, I definitely plan on stealing wherever I end up being next. I think there's also something around um, design and around the aesthetics and, and celebrating those. So just trying to make your home somewhere you can be proud of. I think around using your body as well as the Danes do. So they're a pretty active bunch and part of all of these societies. So yes, cycle, run, jump, dance, shake whatever you've got. I think joining up and being a part of something can really help. And then what am I on? I'm on three, maybe two more. I think Danes are really good at valuing family. Danes see their family a lot probably because they have this short working week, but family is prioritised. And the more you see them, you sort of work through any disagreements you might have and so that they don't build up and fester into these big rows or anything. And loads of studies show that spending time with family and having a close support network is one of the biggest indicators of happiness. So perhaps having dinner with your family every night or something. Yes, because, yeah, having family meals together is really good for us physically and mentally. And then I think I'd love to add also about playing. So in the country that brought the world Lego, play is really considered a worthwhile occupation at any age. And I think because Danes have all this free time, they are they have a really good sense of fun and sense of play. And it's not all about working.
Sound advice from Helen Russell there, and I feel like they're all entirely attainable. Exercise outside. Play. Make your house homely. Leave work on time to ensure you spend quality time with your family and friends. Hugger style. That means no phone or other distractions. That probably means you'll laugh more too. And hey, if you're exercising outside, you may pick up a few of those friendly bacteria along the way too. I wanted to say a huge thank you to everyone who contributed to the programme. That's Connie Orbach, Kerry Cooper, Peter Kinderman, Angela Clow, Emma Sackville and, of course, Helen Russell. The programme was produced and presented by myself, Greer Jackson, and next week we're looking at how to build the ultimate sustainable house, brick by brick. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the SDFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Greer Jackson and until next week, goodbye from me and the rest of the Naked Scientist team.